Good morning. Is it too hot? I can't do anything about it. So uh, it was kind of a shock, right? Because it was cool, you know, outside today, which was nice. So my name is David Swanson. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at New Community. And Pastor Peter is taking kind of a study break and spiritual renewal over the next few weeks. I'd ask that you be praying for him as he spends time listening to God. Uh, wrestling with God, uh, envisioning what God has for the future of our church. Pastor Michael spent the end of the week in Portland, Oregon, which is where our denomination uh, is holding its annual meetings right now. Um, And Portland is, have you been to Portland? Anyone been to Portland? It's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. But Pastor Michael was sitting in a conference room all week inside, which is just tragic. Um, so hopefully he got to go outside a little bit and enjoy a beautiful, beautiful city. Uh, we're um, in the, I could almost say this now, the middle of a sermon series on the book of Acts. We're into chapter 13, believe it or not. Um, and we've been in it since September. We're going to keep plugging through. But, 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 we're making progress. And uh, chapter 13 actually marks a, a significant transition in the book of Acts. The gospel is now moving into the Roman world. And so what you'll notice from here on out is that many of the stories in the, in the book of Acts have to do with the gospel and the early church confronting the Roman world. The gospel being proclaimed in urban centers throughout the Roman Empire, and we get to observe how people respond to that. And that's what we find in our passage today. The other significant transition is that Paul who had been a minor character in the story thus far, becomes front and center throughout the rest of the book. Paul, who used to be Saul, who was converted dramatically on the road to Damascus, spent some time talking about that, now takes a a, a front and center role in the life of the early church. We're going to see that again today. In fact, today, we hear Paul speak extensively for the first time in the book of Acts. This is significant, of course, because much of the New Testament was authored by Paul. And so it's important for us to notice who this person is, where he's coming from, and how it is that he explains God's story. Um, I want to be honest and tell you that the content of my sermon this morning is not all that uh, new. Um, in fact, uh, I, I was really wrestling with that this week, and, and I, was, I was trying to figure out how do I preach this message in a way that is fresh, that is new, that is innovative. Part of that is my pride. Part of that is my insecurity. Part of that is my desire to engage you in this text. But the reality is, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, what I'm going to talk about today is stuff you've heard before. I hope that's okay. Uh, yesterday afternoon, I was taking a, starting to take a nap. And this doesn't happen to me very often. And, and not the nap part, but the other part. <laughs> uh, and I had this pretty clear sense uh, Uh, of God's just saying, it doesn't have to be new. So it's not going to be new. This is a retro sermon, as it it were. And I felt an incredible peace in that moment yesterday afternoon. Because what I'm going to speak about today, what I'm going to preach to you today, is very old. Uh, It's a message that many of you are very familiar with. But having spent a week sitting in this text, I'm convinced that it's something that we need to hear. Why? You're going to see at the end of this story today that there are two radically different responses to the same message preached by Paul. 
Two groups of people who hear the exact same thing and both have radically different responses to this message. And here's the thing. Neither of those responses are passive. Does that make sense? Neither of their responses are passive. So my job today is to, is to read through this, this text, is to preach to you in a way that helps you know what it was like to be there in that moment. We need today to get a sense of what was it like to hear this message for the very first time, even though we're so familiar with it. And we, we need to, when we get to the end of the story, we need to have that same sense of there are two ways that I can respond to this message and neither of them are passive. That's my job today. Your job is to go along for the ride, is to engage And like I prayed before, to open your heart to God, what is it that you might have for me in this that I think I already understand, that I think I already know? Fair enough? Can we do that? Okay. All right. Good deal. Acts chapter 13. Someone said amen. That lovely. Uh, Acts chapter 13. Open your Bibles if you have a Bible. If not, you can follow along uh, up front here. Um, This is basically a very, very long passage. And uh, Acts chapter 13, uh, verses 13 through 52 and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to zero in on just one section of this passage where Paul tells this, this longer story. So I'm going to read the whole thing in a second. Um, but we're going to spend most of our time looking at the story that Paul tells. Uh, I've been at New Community since last May, so a year and a month or so. That has given me the opportunity to hear a lot of your stories Dozens and dozens and dozens of stories over coffee, over lunch, in my office, where I've had a chance to say, I don't know you. I don't know where you're coming from. Who are you? What's your story? And here's what I've noticed. Here's what I've noticed in the past year. You and I have the tendency to organize our lives, to to make meaning of our lives by telling a story. I think this is a human tendency to make sense of the universe, to make sense of our lives by telling the story of our life. And maybe you've done this when, you, when you're getting to know somebody as a new friend, maybe you're dating somebody. At some point, right, you kind of tell your story and you choose what details you're going to leave out. <laughs> and we all do that. But, but there's a story that we tell. And, and here's the thing. I think there are I think there are at least three elements to the story we tell of our life. Now, you literature majors, English people, you're going to tell me I'm all wrong here. There's way more. It's more complicated. I'm a simple guy. There's three elements to the stories we tell. First, something has to happen in our story. There needs to be an event, right? It's a very boring story if nothing happens. So when I hear your story, oftentimes you organize it by these events that have happened throughout your life. This happened, and then a little while later, this happened, and then a little while later, this happened. Something needs to happen. So um, this week, Michael Jackson uh, passed. Did you know that? Okay, <laughs> that's good. Um, and and, and do, Josh, do we have this? Do we have the Facebook status updates? Uh, So I did this. I just collected a lot of your Facebook status updates this week. So somebody learned the Michael Jackson shuffle tonight in honor of the king. Someone is listening to old Michael Jackson songs on YouTube. I think that's a frowny face. Uh, In the words of Dave Chappelle, he wrote, thriller, man, thriller. Someone is listening to an elderly woman in Walgreens tell me how much she likes all the Jacksons, including LaToya, which apparently that's significant. Okay. 
Someone wonders why the world spends so much time talking about the death of Michael Jackson. Who cares? How does his death really affect my life? Didn't know the guy, sad for his family, not really any sadder than I am to hear that any person I don't know died. Someone else is heartbroken over Michael Jackson. Billie Jean is not my lover. (laughs) Someone confesses to chasing down Michael Jackson at a mall in Palm Beach, Florida. I was 30, once an 80s fan, always an 80s fan. Someone is sad about Michael Jackson, but is even more sad for all the people being killed in Iran whose deaths the cable stations will now no longer have time to cover. Someone else, this is making me think, how will I be remembered? Ooh, profound. That's good. Uh, someone is wearing his white glove in tribute to the king of pop. May he finally be in peace. Now, I mean, here's what I noticed about this. Not to be flippant. Um, this was a significant cultural figure for us. Would you agree? Many of us, a decade from now, are going to be able to say, this is where I was when I heard that Michael Jackson died, right? I've said that like three or four times this week. I've told a story. I was in a restaurant in Bolingbroke. The waitress came up to our table. You never believe what I just... So there are these events. There's these things that happen, and, and maybe it's not all cultural icons passing. It's probably things that are more personal. So for me lately, it's had to do with the adoption of my son. And some of you know that my wife and I have been on this adoption process. And so if you ask me my story recently, a lot of it has to do with his adoption. And there are all these events, all of these moments in this adoption process that I'm going to tell you about. The other thing that a story needs is conflict. A good story needs something that's going to draw you into it. It needs a question. It needs tension. It needs conflict. Why? Because that's our human experience. Our life is not just a series of events. Would you agree? Have you ever had someone, let me tell you this great, great story, and all, of it, all it is is just events? There's no tension. There's no conflict. That's a boring, boring, boring story. Some of you have seen movies that that's just all it is, or you've read a book, and yet, where was the tension? Why? Because we need something that's going to draw us in, because that is our human experience. Life is full of conflict, question, confusion, tension. So So for me, again, lately, one of the key moments of conflict in our adoption story was the day that we got a phone call saying, you've been chosen to be an adopted parent, And there may be too many legal hurdles for you to ever meet this child. Now, I don't don't know how you hear that, but as I've told this story before, what I notice is that's the moment when someone starts caring about my story. It's one thing for me to tell you the events of this adoption story. It's another thing for me to tell you about this moment of conflict, this tension. We heard we might get this child, and then we learned that there's just, there, we may never even get to meet him. Unless you're a cold-hearted person, and you start caring in that moment, right? Finally, a story needs resolution. It's no fun to just hang out in conflict and tension all day long. How many of you saw the movie Doubt? Doubt? Anybody? Okay. So Doubt, and I won't give it away, Doubt... Um, plays with this idea of resolution. This movie Doubt, and I'm not going to give you any details because you probably should see it, but Doubt uh, introduces all kinds of conflict into this film, all kinds of question about whether a certain event happened or not. But it never resolves. Do you remember that? Those of you who've seen it, it never resolves. 
I can about guarantee that if you saw this movie with somebody at a theater or after you turned off your DVD player, what was the first question you asked? Did he do it? The main character, the question, the conflict, did he do it or not? Why? Because we care. We get drawn into that moment and we want it to be resolved. So again, for my adoption story, the resolution boiled down is we got our son. The legal hurdles were overcome. Time went by. We, 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 we stuck with it and eventually we got to meet our son. That's the resolution in that little piece of my story. And, and when we tell these stories, when you tell your story, and, and, and you tell your story this way, I've heard you do it, you're saying something about your understanding of, let's call it, the big story in capital letters. The way you tell your personal story with the events, the conflict, and the resolution says a lot about your understanding about how the world works. The way you interpret the events in your life, the way you interpret the conflict, the tension, the pain, the suffering that comes into your life, the way you interpret and explain the resolution says a lot about your understanding about the big story. Does that make sense? So when I'm talking to you and I'm listening to your story, I can get a pretty good idea whether you're a person who believes the world is governed just simply by natural law or whether you're a person who believes that God is somehow involved in the world. Have you had this experience? Someone doesn't have to tell you, here's my philosophy of life. Here's my worldview for you to get tastes of this, right? So this is what I want you to watch for in our story today. Paul is about to tell the big story, capital letters. And within that is contained our story. And this is going to lead us to the question of how we choose to respond. Let's go ahead and put this passage up on the screen, Josh. If I get tired, I'm going to ask you all to start reading with me, okay? So, so Paul and his companions are on this missionary journey. From Paphos, Paul and his companions sailed to Perga, where John left them to return to Jerusalem. From there, they went on to Pisidian Antioch. On the Sabbath, they entered the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the synagogue ruler sent word to them, saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. Let's just pause there for a second. A couple of things to notice. First, this, this, this place where they sailed to uh, is swampy, low country, right on the coast. Some scholars believe that Paul actually got malaria while he was here. Why? When he, when he writes to the church in Galatia, which is about where he's going to go here in just, a, in just a minute, he says, the reason I first came to you is because I was sick. And so, so he goes up, here in a second, he goes up to this other city that's higher altitude. This is what you would have done if you'd gotten malaria, you'd go up to a higher altitude, right? So maybe he's super sick. The other thing we learn is that John leaves him. One of his strategic missionary companions leaves him here. Just says leaves, but we learn later in Acts chapter 15 that Paul interpreted this as being deserted. So one of Paul's key companions deserts him when, when it gets a little tough. And then they go up to the city, Pisidian Antioch, which is 3,800 feet higher than the coast. Uh, there's no, like, highway to get there. So they have to literally go up from sea level, up 3,800 feet. They have to go over top of a mountain range to get to the city. Paul is determined to get to Pisidian Antioch. We've said this before in New Community. Let me say it again. Paul has an intentional missionary strategy when it comes to church planting. Pisidian Antioch was the center 
of Galatia, of the province of Galatia. It was the military and civil center. It was the urban metropolis of that area of the world. And no matter what Paul's going to get there. If his friends desert him, if he has to go over top of a mountain pass, if he has malaria potential, he's going to get there. Why? This is, his, this is his church planting strategy. Go to the urban center, proclaim the gospel, establish a church, and move on with the expectation that the gospel is going to spread to the surrounding region. That's how our story ends today. In verse 49, Luke tells us that that's what happened. The gospel spreads to the surrounding regions. We're in Logan Square intentionally. We're not randomly a church in the city. We're here intentionally. Why? To proclaim and demonstrate the gospel of Jesus Christ. To, to, to affect change within our city. To send out missionaries as God calls each of us elsewhere. That's why we're planting in Bronzeville for the same reason. Do you get that? It's hot in here. Is it hot in here? Some of you, I can already tell, are fading. If you need to stand up or move around, that's okay. Okay, let's keep going. Uh, Okay, one one other thing here. Uh, Paul goes to the synagogue. So this is a Greek city, uh, heavily Greek, but there's a small Jewish population. Uh, This was common throughout the Roman Empire. There would be small populations of Jewish folks who were kind of in exile from Israel. And so they would gather together, they would start a synagogue, and this is where Paul goes when when he first proclaims the gospel. In any Roman city, he goes to the Jewish synagogue first. What happens in a synagogue, they go through the liturgy, and then if there's any visiting experts, they would be asked to share. Jesus did this in in the Gospel of Luke. He visits a synagogue in Nazareth. They ask him to share from the scriptures. That's exactly what's happening here. After reading from the Law and the Prophets, the synagogue rulers sent word to them saying, Brothers, if you have a message of encouragement for the people, please speak. Standing up, Paul motioned with his hand and said, Men of Israel and you Gentiles who worship God, listen to me. There's two groups of people in this room. There's the Jewish exiles... And there are those Gentiles, those non-Jewish people who are seeking after the Jewish God. That's who's in this room. The God of the people of Israel chose our fathers. He made the people prosper during their stay in Egypt. With mighty power, he led them out of that country. He endured their conduct for about 40 years in the desert. He overthrew seven nations in Canaan and gave their land to his people as their inheritance. All this took about 450 years. After this, God gave them judges until the time of Samuel the prophet. Then the people asked for a king, and he gave them Saul, son of Kish, of the tribe of Benjamin, who ruled 40 years. After removing Saul, he made David their king. He testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. Now, I want you to start reading at this point here as we, as we encounter Jesus for the first time. So join me. From this man's descendants, God has brought to Israel the Savior Jesus, as he promised. Before the coming of Jesus, John preached repentance and baptism to the people of Israel. As John was completing his work,
Okay, pause there. I'm going to pick it up here. So that's the end of this long story that Paul tells. This is the reaction then. Um, yep. As Paul and Barnabas were leaving the synagogue, the people invited them to speak further about these things on the next Sabbath. When the congregation was dismissed, many of the Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who talked with them and urged them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and talked abusively against what Paul was saying. Then Paul and Barnabas answered them boldly, We had to speak the word of God to you first, since you reject it and do not consider yourselves worthy of eternal life. We now turn to the Gentiles. For this is what the Lord has commanded us. I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. The word of the Lord spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the God-fearing women of high standing and the leading men of the city. They stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. So they shook the dust from their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Thank you for helping me out there. Uh, so we're going to just zero in on, on the story that Paul tells, looking for these elements of, of what happened, what was the conflict, how was it resolved. And Paul hits the high points in this story. Um, uh, Josh, if you can keep up there, the verses 17-ish. Uh, he hits the high points of this story. He, he, he talks about the fact that God chose the people. This is a throwaway line for us, but loaded with meaning for those in that synagogue. Paul here is referencing the fact that God had made this covenant promise with Abraham, with Abraham's descendants, and with the nation of Israel. So when Paul starts the story by saying, God chose us, our ancestors, when God chose you, he's bringing the people right back to the very beginning of this story. In fact, let's put up Genesis chapter 22. Uh, this is a recap of this covenant. So, so God is talking to Abraham here. This is at the very beginning. I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possessions of the cities of their enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. This is, this is what Paul is referencing here. You were chosen. This covenant was made with your father, Abraham. What is this covenant? The covenant is that God is going to take this man and his descendants and the nation of Israel and through them accomplish God's purposes in the world. God is going to give this people a law, a law which will, which will show the world what it means to be a people who is pursuing the way of God. God is on a, let's call it a rescue mission. God is on a rescue mission to redeem, recreate, and restore all of creation. And God comes to Abraham, chooses Abraham and his family to begin this rescue mission in the world. So Paul starts his story right here. Here's the deal, though. And, and you know this, many of you, that the people of Israel, that Abraham's descendants, often got off course, Right? Rather than be a light for the world, rather than carry forward God's rescue mission in the world, very often they got distracted. Very often they just started to look like everybody else. And by the time of Jesus, some of the Jewish leaders had interpreted this covenant as exclusionary. 
some of the Jewish leaders had taken the covenant, had taken the law, and used it to build walls to separate themselves from anybody else. And so what had been God's intention to call out a people to himself, to carry out God's rescue mission in the world, very often got diluted and distracted, very often was used to exclude people rather than invite people into God's mission in the world. But this is where Paul starts. And then he goes on, he hits the high points, he hits the regular high points. You know our people were enslaved in Egypt. You know that God rescued us, that we went through an exodus. You know that God brought us and gave us the, uh, the, the land. You know about uh, the first judges and the first kings. And, and the way Paul tells this story is very Jewish. Everybody in the room is going, yeah, we know this story. How? God is behind everything. Do you, do you notice that in your Bible? If you look through that, God is involved in every aspect of history. It's not just a random sequence of events. It's not just some things that happened. It is God behind everything that happened for God's people. Do you see that? Very Jewish way of telling the story. The other thing, these are actual events. So Paul doesn't get up and say, let me tell you the story and then start quoting some ethereal principles or mystical uh, religious parables. He doesn't, he doesn't stand up and say, let me give you the, the Ten Commandments. That's who we are as a people. What does Paul do? Paul goes back to events in history that actually happened. Christians, that is very important. We are a people who believe that God actually works. That God is actually carrying history somewhere. Amen? So Paul tells the story, and then he gets to King David. And King David is very important because at this moment, everybody in the room perks up. And again, we could miss this, but watch what happens. Watch what happens. King David was seen as the pinnacle of the, of the Jewish kings. He was the best king. He was the king after God's own heart. He was the king who God had used to accomplish many, many things. And so in hindsight, people would look back and say, that was the ideal. That was our moment of glory. But it's not just looking back. What's also happening in this moment is the, is the story is moving forward into the future. Because the Jewish expectation was that a descendant would come from the line of David. That there would one day come a warrior, a king, and a priest. A Messiah figure who would liberate the people of Israel. This was the hope. So as soon as Paul mentions King David, as soon as he starts spending a lot of time on King David, what's happening is the people move from looking back into their history to looking forward to what God is supposed to do for them. Do you see that? One day God is going to send us a descendant of David to liberate us, to set everything to right, to enact justice on our enemies, to purify the temple, to bring home the exiles from Pisidian Antioch. One day God is going to do this. So in that moment, the story moves into the future. Also in this moment, conflict, conflict, conflict comes up in the story for the first time. Why? Because the Messiah hadn't come. If the Messiah had come, the exiles wouldn't still be in Pisidian Antioch. They would be at, in Jerusalem, worshiping God in the purified temple. 
this hope, this longing for a Messiah, one, one who would come in David's lineage, had not been fulfilled. So as soon as, as soon as Paul starts talking about King David, everybody in the room realizes this is where the conflict in the story comes in. Because this is what we're hoping for. This is what we're longing for. And it's not happened. God, we've been praying for this. We've been asking for this. We've been trying to live righteous lives. We've been trying to keep your law. And yet the Messiah hasn't come. Do you, do you see the conflict? I need you to see this conflict because this is really, really key here. Everybody in the room, in this moment, everybody in the synagogue in this moment is brought forward into this hope and into this conflict. God, when is it going to happen? When is this conflict going to be resolved? When is this tension going to be resolved? God, when are you going to fulfill your promises for your people? That's what happens in that moment. So again, Paul is telling a very Jewish story in a very Jewish way. And then, and then all of a sudden, in verse 23, we meet Jesus. And if you're in that room, this is not what you're expecting. Everything is good up till now. You're tracking with this guy, Paul. You're going, amen, that's right, that's right. And then, Josh put it up there, verse 23. And then we meet Jesus. This is totally unexpected. This is not how the story is supposed to go. Now, Paul continues to tell the story in a very Jewish way. He tells about Jesus' lives as events that happened in history. There are witnesses who can testify to these things, just like we can about our past as a people. He continues to tell the story as if God is behind these events. It is God who raised Jesus from the dead. So the way he tells the story is very consistent. These things really happened because God made them happen. But Jesus? Totally, totally unexpected. So understand that the conflict has been raised, and now Paul introduces this absolutely unexpected element to the story. And then watch what happens. Watch what happens in verse 32 and 33. Can we put that up there, Josh? We tell you the good news. What God promised our fathers, he has fulfilled for us, their children, by raising up Jesus. This is the resolution. What God promised our ancestors, Paul says, what, Paul prom- what God promised Abraham and the people, that which we've been longing for, it's been fulfilled for us. How? By raising up Jesus. Now, it, you, you need to try to get there in your mind for a second. This makes absolutely no sense. This makes absolutely no sense. You're you're good with the conflict in the story. You're, You're with Paul on that. But then Jesus died, resurrected. That somehow is fulfilling God's promises to us. Makes no, no sense. I'm guessing the room is kind of like this, just dead quiet. <laughs> what is he talking about? And maybe the synagogue ruler's like, should I, should I yank this guy <laughs> from the front? Because where is this going? Where is this going? Paul, so far, he's been telling this very familiar story. 
He now introduces a surprise ending. He shows that all along, God has been involved. God has been involved. God has been involved. And then this completely unexpected resolution. This descendant of David, crucified and resurrected, somehow fulfills God's promises. And here's the question. Here's the question. How are they going to respond to this? Paul has just introduced this huge thing. Hey, the thing that you've been waiting for, it's happened. The thing that you've been longing for, for generations, the stories you've been telling your kids about what God is going to do for us one day, done, happened, resolved. The climax of human history, it's been reached already. Huge, massive claims. How how are they going to respond to this? And, And before we get to their response, let me say that I think the way they respond depends greatly on their understanding of what the conflict is in the first place. Here's what I mean. If the Jewish leaders believe that the the key question is this, how is God going to rescue us? Then they'll have certain expectations about the resolution. If the key question for those Jewish leaders in the room is how is God going to rescue Israel, then what are they looking for? They're looking for a, a Messiah who's going to rescue one group of people in a specific way, right? A Messiah who will drive out the Romans, who will purify the temple, who will restore orderly worship in the manner they're expecting, who will bring home the exiles. That's what God is supposed to do. Why? Because the conflict is, how will God rescue us and our people? Paul shows up and completely reframes the conflict. The conflict is not how will God rescue a specific group of people. It's how will God rescue the world. Do you see that? It's not how is God going to do something for one specific group of people. It's what is God going to do that will rescue the entire world. And if that's your starting point, if that's the conflict, then you're looking for an entirely different resolution to the story. Would you agree? This is how Paul talks about it in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 3. Uh, Josh, if you can put that up there. So Galatians is a book that's written to this, this church that Paul's about to, to establish. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. In other words, in other words, this rescue mission was never supposed to be for just one group of people. God's rescue mission to recreate, restore, and redeem everything was always a message for the whole world. So the question for Paul is not, how's God going to rescue us? It's how is God going to rescue the world? Radically, radically different assumptions looking for radically, radically different resolutions. If these Jewish leaders were incorrectly understanding the nature of the conflict, they were going to be looking for a, we could say maybe an incorrect version of the resolution. And before we get critical, before we get critical, we need to ask if if we do this as well, right? And we could could say, well, how, how could they miss it? 
right? God came to Abraham. He told Abraham right from the beginning that you're to be a light to the world, uh, uh, to, to participate in my mission to restore. How could they miss it? But do we? Are, are we capable of missing it? Do we understand our role as a church to be one of participating with God in his mission for the whole world? Or is the way that we live, is the way that we act, actually say something about us? That in fact, we believe that God is, is, kind of, is for us. That God is most interested in keeping us safe. That God is most interested in people we're comfortable with, we can relate to. Is that the way we act together sometimes? How, how different, how different in reality are we from those who missed it then? Does our worship together, does our community life together reflect a God who is for the whole world? Does the way we talk with one another, the way we worship, the way we serve, the way we radically give, does all of this reflect the fact that we are participant with God's and his rescue mission for the world? What about our individual stories? In your, in your moment of conflict, in your individual story, what's the question that comes up? Here's what it is for me. God, when are you going to get me out of this? God, when are you going to make my life better, more safe, more happy, more content? God, how will you rescue me, save me, protect me? God, when will this pain stop, this suffering stop? I want to be done. That's my, that's my prayer. As opposed to, God, how are you going to use this conflict to advance your mission in the world? God, how are you going to use this pain to demonstrate your healing to the world? God, how are you going to use the, the injustice committed against me to show your justice to the world? God, how are you going to use this suffering to demonstrate your compassion to the world? I say that very, very carefully, people. Because the conflict in our individual lives can be significant. The pain can be significant. The abuse can be significant. But I don't see any other option given to the church who worships a crucified and risen Savior. What other option do we have when the God of the universe sends his son to take on human flesh, to be crucified in complete weakness in order to enact victory? over sin and death. What option do you and I have but to say, God, in my moment of weakness, pain, suffering, how will you use this? How will you use this to advance your rescue mission in the world? We can be, we can be critical of those in this story who missed it. Uh, we, we, we probably miss it as well. Uh, Josh, put up verse 38, please. Paul then begins to play with the resolution a little bit more. Therefore, my brothers, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes is justified from everything you could not be justified from by the law of Moses. Again, our starting point 
Our understanding of the conflict matters in how we interpret this verse right here. If our understanding of the conflict is, God, how are you going to rescue me? How are you going to save me? How are you going to make my life better, God? If that's our starting point, then we look at this and we say, great, my sins are forgiven. God's going to make my life better. Great, my sins are forgiven. I get to go to heaven one day. Great, my sins are forgiven. I can pull back and protect myself because I'm good to go now. But if our understanding of God's mission is that from the very beginning, He's been calling a people to himself, beginning with Abraham, a covenant family of God, to participate with him in his rescue mission in the world, then we see this radically different, don't we? Forgiveness of sins, then, is not just what can God do for me. Forgiveness of sins, then, is full invitation into the family of God. Forgiveness of sins is not just this interior spiritual thing that happens. Forgiveness of sins is a radical life change that allows me to step fully into God's covenant family. The family that God's been calling to himself ever since he first came to Abraham. Do you see this? You see this? The language Paul uses here is language of justification. Paul is saying something happened. Something happened when the Son of God was crucified and resurrected. Something happened when the Son of God took upon himself all of your sin, all of your rebellion, all of your selfishness, all of your pain. Something happened. Something took place which removed every barrier from your entrance into God's covenant family. Paul says, you've been justified. You've been declared righteous when you accept this gift into God's family. There's nothing, there's nothing that stands between you and God. Nothing between you and the family of God. Nothing between you and full participation in God's rescue mission in his world. You've been justified. You've been declared righteous. You are now a son, a daughter of God. Watch how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3. He writes this later in his life, same kind of themes. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Paul says we all start at the same place. doesn't matter who we are, where we came from, what our religion, what our background. All have been justified freely by the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All have been invited through Christ's death and resurrection, through the victory over the grave, into full participation in the family of God. So we could say that the nature of the conflict in this story is separation, our separation, everyone's separation from God, and that we have forsaken our, our role to participate with God in his rescue mission. And if this is true, then the resolution is this beautiful justification by Jesus on the cross. Justification that removes every barrier between us and God, every barrier between us and the family of God so that we, children of God, enter into active participation with God in his rescue mission in this world.
Let's look at verses 40 through 52. This is what I mentioned at the beginning here. There are two responses in this story. Remember, everybody's been in the room the whole time. Everybody's been in the synagogue. Everybody's heard, heard Paul say the exact same thing. Two radically different responses. One, some of the Jewish leaders react with jealous contradiction and rejection. Paul has just retold their story in a way that doesn't sit well with them. Paul's just said, uh, through the justification of Jesus, there's no racial ethnic superiority. There's no special privilege standing after the cross of Jesus. All are in need of the same rescue. All are invited into full participation with God. And, these, and, and some of these Jewish leaders, they reject. They reject this message. God was supposed to be for them, their God. All of a sudden, this is a God much bigger than they were expecting. And again, we could get critical. We could get critical. But what about this as a possibility? What about this as a possibility? What if these Jewish leaders were just actually willing to really consider the implications of Paul's message? Because we can compare themselves to them, some of us, and we can say, well, I accepted the message. I didn't reject it. I chose well, rightly. Can we consider at least this possibility that they were willing to look at every hard implication of this message? They were willing to consider how radically their lives were going to have to change if they said yes to this message. They realized how their entire worldview would have to change, how everything they did, everything that was important to them, would have to change if they accepted this message. Do you see that? Everything would have to change for these Jewish leaders. And I'd like us to consider if we're all that different. Have we considered how our lives are are totally and completely affected by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have we really considered that? Or have we assumed the nature of the conflict to be, I just need to get fixed. I just need to get healed. I just need to get rescued. And so that's what Jesus did for me. And now I'm good to go. Do we need to consider like those Jewish leaders how radically our lives would change if we accepted this message? What in you, what in me, what in us has not been held up to the light of the gospel? Our money, where we live, relationships, what we do with our free time. What has not been held up in light of the gospel? What have we said yes to too quickly? Because we've not, like these Jewish leaders, considered how radically our lives would change if we fully accepted this gospel message. The gospel, the gospel is not easy. The gospel is grace. The gospel is free. The gospel is never easy. But look at the second response, the Gentiles. The Gentiles in this story receive the gospel gladly. They're so pumped about this message that they invite the whole city to come the next Sabbath. They pack out the synagogue. You've got to hear this. Why? Because they've been told, they've been told that they're not outsiders. 
They've been told that they don't have to, to, to identify with a certain religion, with certain traditions. They don't have to change anything about their, their, their ethnic identity. They are fully invited into this family of God. They were just told by Paul that from the very beginning, God was on a mission to invite them into his family, that they were never meant to be excluded, kept out, kept away from God. That was good news, right? And so they respond with joy, with gladness for what God has done for them. This is what I want, this is what I want us to do. This is, this is what I'd like to invite you to do this week. I'd like to invite you to hold both of these responses in tension. Because both of these responses to the gospel are true responses. Both of these responses to the gospel, to, to, to this beautiful message of justification, to this coming to grips with this, this huge, beautiful story of God, both of these responses are, are right. Both of these responses have considered the implications of the gospel. Can, can we hold these in tension this week? Would you be willing to consider, to reflect soberly what in your life has not been held up to the light of the gospel? If you had been in that room in that day, what would you be thinking about? If, if I accept this, this will have to change. This will have to change. If I, if I accept this message, I'm going to have to start thinking differently, living differently, talking differently, loving differently, giving differently, serving differently. If, if, everything, if, everything, if everything changes because of the gospel, what have we not held up? What have we not held up? Can you hold that intention this week with, with joyful response? Within Christ Jesus, there is no outsider. With what has been accomplished on the cross, with the justification that has been accomplished, that there is no one outside of the possibility of entering God's family. Can, can, you, can you hold in, in this other hand this joyful response of what God has done for you, what Jesus has done for you? This is, the, this is the gospel. The gospel is beautiful, free, grace. The gospel is hard and calls all of our lives into question. How, how, will, we, how will we honestly respond? How will we honestly respond? Let me invite our worship team forward. Let me pray for us. You, you know the events that make up our story, God. You, you know the, the areas where we've, we've experienced conflict in our story, moments of crises. Uh, you know those of us who are right smack in the middle of those moments right now. And Holy Spirit, we ask that you show yourself to us in the middle of our stories. God, your story is so big, so immense. Uh, your, your story is so beautiful, so profound, so challenging, so difficult, so complex, so simple. It's all of this. And, and what makes it so difficult for us is that we live in a story that, uh, live in a world that tells so many different stories. And so it's, for me, it's hard to remember 
the true story that I live within of a God who from the very beginning has been calling all people to to yourself. Of a God who has obliterated every barrier between us and you. A God who desires us not just to know about you, not just to be saved into individual relationship with you, but a God who actually wants us to participate with you on the mission, on the rescue mission that you've been involved with since the beginning. Amazing, amazing. Holy Spirit, would you drive this story deep into us? Would this be our story? When people ask us, what's your story? Where do you come from? What are you about? Would our story reflect this bigger story about who you are and what you have done? That when the time was right, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem us so that we could participate with you. Would you use our stories, would you use the events, the crises in our story, God, to point to, to proclaim, to embody this larger, more beautiful story? Give us the courage this week, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, give us the courage this week to ask, what have we not held up to the light of the gospel? And give us then the courage to release that to you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. The gospel is both free and costly, both hard and both good. Everybody stand. Let's say this benediction together from Paul's letter to the Romans. If this is good news, will you say this loudly with enthusiasm, gracious and grateful for what God has done for you? Say this with me. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? Amen? Go in peace. Go in peace. We'll see you next week.